0: OK, all right. Um, hopefully, there will be more people coming in, but we thought we should kick off. So bienvenidas y bienvenidos. Welcome to the University of Sydney. Before we begin with the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. My name is Fernanda Peñalosa and I'm senior lecturer in Latin American Studies at this university and coordinator of SURCLA Sydney University Research Community for Latin America. Given that our department has strong teaching and research interest as well as expertise in Chilean history and culture, I'm very grateful indeed to Meredith Hall, Program Manager of Sydney Ideas, for giving us the honor to introduce our distinguished speaker of this evening, Professor Ana Maria Steuben, whose presentation title is Women's Inclusion in the History of the Chilean Public Sphere, a Contemporary View. We would also like to take this opportunity to thank the Embassy of Chile for sponsoring Professor Stuven's visit to our university. Following Professor Stuven's presentation, you're welcome to ask questions to our guest speaker. I will also moderate the Q&A session, so I'll be grateful if you could keep your questions as short as possible, so that many of us have um, the opportunity to engage in discussion with Professor Steuben. Ana Maria Steuben is Professor of History at the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile and Director of the History of Political Ideas Program at the Universidad Diego Portales. Professor Steuben has a PhD in History from Stanford University and has been a visiting scholar in prestigious universities in Europe and the Americas, such as the Center for Latin American Studies at Pittsburgh University, L'Institut de l'Amérique latine de l'Université de Sorbonne-Nouvelle Paris 3 at the University and at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Professor Steuben and a high reputation as a historian of political ideas, being her most recent publication in this field, Debates Republicanos en Chile, Siglo XIX, and for the past two decades, Professor Stuven has also focused on the history of women in Chile. In this field, her most recent publication is a two-volume edited collection with Joaquin Fernandoa, Historia de las Mujeres en Chile. In a recent interview, Professor Stuven confesses that it was not a career decision to become a historian focused on women. According to Steuben, her own findings took her in that direction as she could see a pattern of power relations that responds to a structure of inequality ingrained in Chilean history with repercussions to this day. One of the most notable merits of the work of Professor Steuben is that it explicitly attempts to understand what are the roots of contemporary gender inequality in Chile. How have the challenges faced by women in Chile changed over time? The work of Professor Stubben reveals that women underwent uneven periods of invisibility and empowerment in the South American Republic, and that they occupied ambiguous and often problematic positions in Chilean history. Stubben's work also addresses how do beliefs about gender and gender roles relate to race, class, and political structures, and how these beliefs changed over time. Like in many other Latin American countries, working class and indigenous women, who are often ignored and neglected by both male and female elites, are amongst the most affected by this structure of inequality. In the interview I was referring to before, Steuben points out one of the most dramatic aspects of the history of inequality and injustice is the vulnerability of women in prisons. Poverty, isolation, and social exclusion result in an extreme situation of disadvantage for these women. Professor Steuben's commitment to empowering women goes beyond the confines of academic knowledge production. Over 10 years ago, she set up Abriendo Puertas, opening doors, an organization that provides women in prison with training opportunities, counseling, and support. Please join me in welcoming Professor Steuben.
1: you very much. I feel ashamed at your introduction. <laughs> I feel very, very flattered, but uh, it was not necessary <laughs> to say all those things about me. Um, I just try to study history and to let you know what I've been uh, researching uh, in the last period. Um, let me start by thanking you all for being here, especially uh, Sandra, in charge of the international affairs at the University, Meredith Hall, for organizing this meeting, uh, Fernando, Fernanda, for your introduction, <laughs> and uh, of course the Embassy of Chile who made it possible for me to be here with uh, especially uh, my friend uh, Camilo Sanguesa, the consul, and uh, Alfredo from uh, Chile. Uh, Well. You all excuse me because I will have to—I will try to put a context, a political context and a historical context, in order to make women appear as uh, as an actor in Chilean history. I I thought that it was necessary because I imagine that, uh, as in most places, uh, gender studies have helped us to understand that one has to focus on the relationship between the the cultural context between men and women in order to make women appear and not uh, talk about women as if they they were another marginalized group with no relationship to the rest of society and no relationship to the historical and political context of the different nations. So I will start with uh, uh, referring to as far as 1808 which was, eh, as you probably know, a crucial year for America and the modern world. The invasion of the Iberian Peninsula by Napoleon's army unfolded a process of unexpected consequences for the Atlantic world. The abdication by Ferdinand VII in favor of the French invader and the decision by the Spanish courts to roll back the sovereignty of the king to the people prompted the leading groups in the territories belonging to the crown to assume government in representation of the captive king. I'll get to women, so don't worry. It is well known that when uh, the king intended to reestablish absolutism in Spain and its colonies, the criollo population fought for and declared independence. Excuse me, as I said, for making this quick reference to very basic data often neglected when explaining the particularities of South American political processes and its permanent struggle with democracy. The point is that the Republican political system was not the result of a deliberation, but of the necessity to replace a rejected political system with the only viable alternative, monarchy by republicanism, the consequence being that from a social and cultural point of view, the local elites were not at all familiar with the requirements of a republic, not even anxious to live according to the dictates of the principles resulting from the transfer of sovereignty from the monarch to the people. That is, representation, citizenship, suffrage, were only some of the institutions that had to replace the divine right of the king and his fueros or concessions. The concept of rights added to the principles of equality and liberty transformed the republican political scenario in a way unexpected by the elites, for whom the protection of the king, legitimated by the will of God, was a guarantee against the possible pressures for participation by a people considered uncivilized and ill-prepared for participation. Therefore, my first point is that independence from Spain was an incredible intellectual surprise. Becoming a republic was a historical necessity the only possible legitimate political solution to the problem of authority, which undoubtedly created what Francois Puret has called an empty space, a void in the pyramidal structure of a corporate society where the king represented the head of the body politic. Among the cultural consequences of this void for the new ruling classes was a feeling of orphanage and thus a fear for anarchy, the need to create individual nations from the remains of the large Spanish nation, emerging only from historical identifications with the territory, but not from a consciousness of, excuse me, the neologism, Chileanity, or Peruvianity, or Argentinianity. The new Republican states, with uncertain limits, uncertain institutionality, we were just talking about the limits with Fernanda, and uncertain people became the reality for those having to build for example, the Chilean national state. Their definition of republic did not necessarily comply with liberal republicanism. It was a form of republic in which liberty did not take the form of an individual right, and in which liberty and equality were circumscribed by a more traditional view of the common good. Modernity, with the priority given to the individual, was to be achieved in time, for which the ideology of progress, Condorcet's style, for example, gave the perfect framework. This allowed to postpone the updating of the requirements for a representative government and a democratic society. It also allowed for a concept of time defined as in transit to progress, thus reducing the anxiety provoked by the theoretical demands of republicanism. History with the capital age as Reinhard Goldschild defines it, was oriented towards the future, the present being a time for experiments and not necessarily a time for the implementation of Republican requirements. In this scenario, the first decades of independence, the Republic of Chile was established in 1819, even though in 1810, we've had our first uh, government junta. As I say, in this scenario, The first decades of independence witnessed different political experiments in the building process of the republic, consistent with the fears of the people by the ruling class, but at the same time admitting that they had to create forms of political authority and representation corresponding to a republic. The recognition of Catholicism as the only religion allowed for the moral and moderating influence of the Church to maintain its credibility and support of a social order with certain divine sanction, despite the early emergence of conflict with the clergy for the inheritance of the rights of patronage formerly associated with the monarch. In this context, Republicanism, Catholicism, and social order became the leading consensual values, which in the case of Chile, suffered less violent challenges from dissident groups than in other South American countries. Nonetheless, the elites were fearful of the anarchical times that other Latin American countries were going through and, from Bolívar on, realized that establishing democracy in the continent was like, as Bolívar said, plowing in the sea. In order to build the new republican order, social order, understood as institutional stability, the absence of social unrest and of threatens to the power structure imposed by the dominant group should prevail even at the cost of interruption of the constitutional rule. The ruling class believed that a shared faith in its consequent shared view of the world was not only good for those who truly believed, but an instrument of social order and control as well. It was a protection against the inevitable influence of intellectual and political ideas and processes over the value matrix of society. A society where rationality took the place of providence as a guide was conceived as dangerous, especially in a situation of no confidence of the people as capable of exercising popular sovereignty nor of enjoying citizenship. Thus was established a separation between civil society and political society, civil rights and political rights, and borrowing from Rousseau a rational will and a national will. Rationality and civilization were the requirements for membership into political society. Within this very general context, you may now uh, let me introduce women as part of the deliberation between inclusion and exclusion into the public and political spheres. When I talk about a separation between a rational will and the national will, that is exactly a topic very uh, sensible for women. Jürgen Habermas defined the political and the public spheres as characteristics of a modern world where the individual replaces the community as a privileged reference for political deliberation. Regarding Republican demands, very early in 1812, José Miguel Carrera criticized the neglect of women by colonial authorities and ordered that every convent open a section for the education of women in the chores corresponding to her nature. Remember, we are talking about a separation between a rational will and the national will, women having to access to the ra- to rationality necessary to be members of a civil society. So they were taught how to read and write, sewing, embroidery, and a little of arithmetic. Everything oriented towards the education of the children and the promotion of religious and moral values. This is the first consideration towards the education of what was called the weak sex in what constitutes for us in its development in the following decades, a focal point to observe how its contents and the opportunities awarded to women reflected the conflicting views of a traditional society facing the challenges of the modern world. That's why, as I said, I view uh, the history and and the transit between a traditional society and a modern society in the eyes of women. Discussions about her nature, including her body, and particularly her brain, were fundamental to define each group's standing on the social role of women and the possibility of their insertion into the public sphere or their admission into public opinion. For both sexes, the Republican state of Chile put special emphasis on education as an element of civilization and a requirement for the insertion into the world of citizenship. Elite women were educated in private schools, and until the struggle between church and state in the 1840s became evident, it was the state and not the church which emphasized education for women. I shall return to this in a moment. My hypothesis is that though neglected in terms of their rights, especially political, elite women were a key instrument for liberals and conservatives in the project that each had for the nation to be created, being both groups the representatives of the political divisions within the consensual social identification of the ruling class. In that sense, The topic about the insertion of women in the public sphere is about Republican demands of inclusion, but also about power and Republican political practices. From the 1840s on, the cooptation of women became relevant for both the Catholic Church and the state in their dispute over the control of the political institutions and the consciousness of the newborn nation. Women obtained recognition of their power space within the spheres that pertain to them, the home and the education of the church, and the church invi- and the education of the children, excuse, excuse me, and the church invited foreign congregations of nuns to educate elite women. That is, the place of feminine power would find its place in women's performance of their function within the family the church would also act at the defense of the faith. I argue, therefore, that although direct female participation in political society was not raised as an alternative, just as other minors were not considered either, women increasingly became a key element of civil society. Thus, by the mid-19th century, with women's public participation in defense of the church, the rigid separation, between public and private began to blur and women assumed a prominent role in both the public and private imagination. As Erika Massa rightly points out, they exerted a sort of Catholic feminism. Let me illustrate this point with an example. As early as 1844, there was a debate in which an important journalist wrote that women should be educated in reason and enlightenment so she could occupy the position to which she was destined by God. This position included the defense of the faith, of course, so she would be able to rid herself of what called the errors taught by her, to her by fanatics and transmit the spirit of the gospel, being it, and I cite, God made women free, and she is a slave by the influence of men. In order to overcome this imposition, women needed scientific education as opposed to church one. The Revista Católica, founded to fight the equivocal ideas of the century, responded by defending church education and attacking philosophy and rationalism as anti-religious. Furthermore, it argued that scientific knowledge was not necessary for accomplishing the moral and domestic obligations of a mother. This is just to say, that this kind of polemic suggested that behind the struggle for or against scientific education for women, there was a recognition of their place of power, which justified that so many men made representations of her intellectual, biological, genetic, psychological, and spiritual constraints and strengths. In 1856, on occasion of a conflict between the Archbishop of Santiago and the government on matters related to state and church jurisdiction, elite women challenged the President of the Republic that they would not allow any retaliation against the clergy. Not only because of their courage, but in part because of it, negotiations prevented a larger rupture between state and society. Years later, women published a periodical, El Eco de las Señoras de Santiago, appeared in 1865, on the occasion of the discussion in Congress of the possibility to abolish Article 5 of the Constitution, which established the exclusiveness of the public practice of the Catholic religion. Remember, the state was constitutionally Catholic. The periodical was supposedly written by women to prevent the passing of a liberal project. But historians like liberal Vicuña Mackenna denounced the presence of their husbands in the writing. A newspaper of the time, wrote that women were not capable of arguing in such a rational way. Let me add that my sources indicate that during the whole of the 19th century, women, on their part, did not intend to get involved in other matters than those related to family and religion, not only in Chile, but elsewhere in the Western world as well. Only towards the end of the century, Did they exert pressure to further their access to education and follow similar curricula as men. The result in Chile was that in 1877 they were allowed to take exams valid to apply to the university, being the first in Latin America. The professions they chose in the beginning were all related to the cultural tradition of women's involvement, that is medicine, especially midwives, law in areas dedicated to family, and health matters. The University of Chile, was the first in South America to graduate women. The situation of women tended to its further incorporation into civil rights, especially when faced with the need for regulation of their participation in the workforce. Traditionally, it is obvious, women did work as artisans or servants of all sorts with no access to gender considerations nor to public opinion. By the turn of the century, When the conflict between church and state was solved with virtual separation, when education had rendered its roots and an active middle class supported by popular sectors demanded for labor laws, women founded their own associations, at first to improve their working conditions, soon to obtain rights to fair salaries, and protection from abuses in the handling of family income and the legal situation of their children. The process of incorporation of Chile into the capital area, as Hobsman describes it, was accelerated after the victory of Peru and Bolivia in the War of the Pacific between 1879 and 1884, which ended with Chilean troops in Lima and the addition of two provinces to its territory, with rich copper mines and one of the best nitrate deposits of the world. While the north of Chile attracted workers and investors, Agriculture suffered one of its cyclical crises, and the capital, Santiago, was invaded by former peasants. The 19th century, defined by the ideology of indefinite progress, was coming to an end, and with the ruling class and the oligarchy having to face and smell the dirt of a city who hosted glorious palaces for the rich and only slums for the poor. This process laid the social question had decisive social and political consequences during the whole of the 20th century in Chile. Charity, which had been the main occupation of well-to-do ladies, was soon overcome by the need for further solutions. Rerum Novarum, considered the first social encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, warned against the possibility of social unrest by socialism and also of injustice by liberalism. Discussed among some Catholic circles, it became an incentive for women to engage with the poor and the working force, and also to open the minds of an hermetic oligarchy, which by the 20s and 30s, started to use concepts such as social justice. As a consequence, members of the conservative party proposed the passing of laws for the protection of infants, combat against tuberculosis, and other so-called social illnesses, decent housing for workers, and promoted laws against the crime of usury. It is paradoxical that conservative women were more socially oriented than liberal ones, and it is due to the fact that since they were the ones involved in charity, were also closer witnesses to the social situation of the poor. At the same time, some elite women dared to challenge the cultural status quo. For example, Martina Barros translated The Slavery of Women by John Stuart Mill, risking what she later declared was the despise of her social circle. Stuart Mill had written that the best demonstration of social progress was the advance of equality between men and women. Martina also denounced the fact that society entrusted the children of the fatherland to women but did not entrust them with the possibility to vote. In the 1920s, women's interests shifted from associations to protect their civil rights to the formation of women's political parties. <laughs> the Partido, Progressi- Partido Femenino Progresista Nacional, the Partido Civico Femenino, the Movimiento Pro Emancipación de la Mujer, and later the Partido Femenino de Chile witness to the newly discovered political way to improve their condition. All of them published their own periodicals and offered alternatives for the advancement of women's position in society. Evidently, the rise of feminist movements in the US and other Latin American countries and the involvement of women professionals in international organizations after the First World War was decisive in the introduction of a discourse associated to the concept of rights for women, and not only for concessions granted by the male world. Let me mention that Chilean women formed part of the Pan American Union in 1908, that four attended the first International Congress of Women in 1910, that they were incorporated into the International Women's Suffrage Alliance of Carrie Chapman, and that the Pan American Conference of Women was held in Santiago in 1923. In the 30s, a Chilean woman participated at the Conference of Nationalities of the League of Nations in The Hague and prepared a report on the situation of women for the Inter-American Committee of Women. This is one of the major changes in the access of women to the public sphere. When Olympia de Gouges, during the French Revolution, dared to oppose the universal declaration of women's rights to that of the rights of Man, her destiny was the guillotine. For almost one century, The concept of rights was never applied to women. Patriarchal societies, even liberalism, did not conceive of awarding their other theoretical place to women than the domestic within civil society in the distinction created by John Locke between political and civil society, public and private spheres. Let us also recall that the Russian Revolution and the Marxist-Leninist parties in America did not struggle for women's rights since they privileged class struggle rather than gender or race. By the 1920s, this position was definitely questioned, and one can find men, among them President Arturo Alessandri, attracting women towards politics and promising political rights to them. At the time, the mother-child diet became one of the most important claims of women. High rates of infant mortality, the need to protect maternity and working rights, all indicated the urgency to seriously discuss the legal situation of women. Divorce and voting were discussed. The law of divorce always rejected, as you know, until very recent decades. Even though unsuccessful, they were decisive in placing feminine problems in the arena. The right to suffrage for women in Chile was granted in the 30s in a pedagogical term only for local authorities. By 1949, they were granted full voting rights, and in 1952, women first voted in a presidential election. Let me mention that this right was granted rather late compared to other Latin American countries. Uruguay granted it, for example, in 1927, but earlier than Argentina and France. Australia, of course, is a pioneer in this topic granting female suffrage in 1861, if I'm not wrong. It is interesting to mention that despite the struggle of the 20s and 30s for rights, when suffrage was obtained, women did not continue acting corporately. They were incorporated into feminine sections of male political parties and demonstrated as Maria de la Cruz, first woman to sit in the Senate said, parties mean nothing for the future of our democracy. This meaning to my understanding that even though women struggled to become full members of the polity, as far as the recognition of their political rights is concerned, they did not believe that it meant great progress, if not accompanied by cultural changes and gender considerations in a society that formerly modern continued with ancestral traces of traditionalism. And this can be associated to social movements arising in this last years. The 60s and 70s were decades of great turmoil, not only politically but also culturally and socially. Politically, Marxism and polarization within the elites involved women. The Cold War and the fear of a world disintegrating by radical opponents to the Catholic pseudo-aristocratic ethos in an insular society were elements with which women did not remain indifferent. Governments were active in promoting women participation, especially from a traditional perspective as mothers in the local level. They also accessed better levels of education. Between 1950 and 1973, date of the military coup led by Augusto Pinochet, 30 women were elected for Congress, similar to the participation of women in France, the U.S., and Great Britain, the difference being that most of them had some family tie with male politicians. In 1970, Salvador Allende inaugurated his experiment with socialism, Chilean style with red wine and empanadas. You'd all know the outcome of the experiment and the deep polarization of Chilean society at the time. Just as the socialists in the 20s, the Allende government did not intend to revert traditional roles for women and insisted that she be above all a mother, over, worker, or citizen. A study by Sandra Deutsch demonstrated that socialist men perceived themselves as a subject of revolution, while women were supposed to be seduced to second him. Allende himself declared that men should conquer women for the revolution with passion and tenderness. But women in the opposition to Allende did not wait to be conquered. They rallied in the streets against a government which they perceived as threatening Chilean values. I'm talking of elite women. In fact, as the economic and political situation became critical, when markets emptied and the government proposed a law to control education, just as they had done to defend their church in the 19th century, women became protagonists in favor of family and property. The traditionalist ethos returned in all its strength providing more than one of the arguments to the defeat of the socialist experiment. The military in Chile are, as in most places in the world, in the West, a traditional institution. During the 17 years of the military dictatorship, there were only two women as cabinet members, from 15 women in Congress before to no Congress. The spirit of Pinochet towards women can be summarized in part of his message in 1974 to the Chilean Office of Women. And I cite, a woman who becomes a mother doesn't expect any material goods. She expects and finds in her own son the goal of her life, her only treasure, the realization of all her dreams. He himself promoted himself as an authoritarian father and encouraged his wife in her work with women feminine groups who were supposed to be part of his political constituency. The deep economic crisis in the first years of the regime forced popular women into activism when unemployment was above 18%. Women organized ollas comunes, community pans, for feeding the community. It was also inspired by the solidarity of spouses and mothers with the victims of human rights violations. They occupied public spaces and abandoned their domestic roles, challenging cultural stereotypes, and, as elite women had done against Allende, rallying against the regime, 1983 was a crucial year for Chilean women. It was the year when protests became public and fearless, when a group called Women for Life organized a multitudinary meeting at the Teatro Capulican. In 1986, they openly denounced the gender attitude of political parties and the dictatorship. Women welcomed, as most of the country, the return of democracy in 1991. They paid their price nonetheless. When tensions eased and the priority was that of consolidating a risky process of democratization, the demands of individual or marginal groups were subsumed into the larger process. The mystic and ethic justification of women's struggle in a way lost their legitimation since the new political context reopened the institutional channels of participation in the public arena. The rules of the political game were once again enacted, and women had to face the historical problems for their political participation. Manuel Antonio Garretón has demonstrated that the problem for women is not so much that of participation, since she enjoys and employs her rights. Ninety-three percent of Chilean women were registered to vote when it was not automatic as it is now and their participation in elections is similar to that of the male population. The problem for political participations seems to be access to public and office and to power, related to two historical conditions of Chilean politics from my point of view. First, that women became interested in politics, as I mentioned, in the 20s and 30s, when ideological political divisions were already established between a right, a center, and a left each with its political parties where women only had a chance to join in the spaces that were open to them. And second, because political parties, until the recent emergence of social autonomous groups or social movements, as we call them now, were the only intermediaries with the state. Only recently, as in most countries in the West, associated with the decreasing credibility of political parties and institutions, Groups representing social demands have substituted Congress and political parties by the public space where, supported by the means of communication, they socialize their demands and put pressure on institutions. In Chile, up until now, students have been the most active. Women are in the rear, especially because in the last years, important progress has been made, notably in favor of maternity. You're probably expecting me to recognize that having had a first woman as president in the history of the republic, and today having two main candidates for the November election being women, is not a minor data. It is not minor either that the 20th century witnessed, as we have mentioned, important organizations of women, and both Agenda and Pinochet had to face dangerous opposition by women. Of course, as we have mentioned, political parties do not promote women participation unless they have certain profiles that either attract because they satisfy the aesthetic and personality codes of traditional groups, or because exactly the contrary, they compete successfully with men in their own field. Michelle Bachelet is, on this election, the perfect mother. When she was first candidate, her image was that of a strong woman She was seen driving a tank when she was Minister of Defense. Evelyn Matei, on her part, is a strong, outspoken economist for whom being also attractive provides a surplus in the struggle within the male world. It is also interesting that until the arrival of Mrs. Bachelet de la Moneda in 2006, the evolution of the participation of women in political decisions had been slow but steady. From 1989 to date, the percentage of Senator women has increased from 2.6% to 13.1% and that of Congress women from 5.8% to 14.2, as we have mentioned. The average feminine participation in Congress is of 13.9% to date, low compared to the rest of the region, which is 22.3, the average in all ECD countries being 25%. Progress has also been oscillating. From 15.8% of Congresswomen in 2005, 2009 had 14. At the level of leading government executives, the Bachelet era offered almost half of the position for women. Just just to compare, after the recovery of democracy, the first president, President Elwin, nominated 5% of women in his cabinet, the following 16%, President Lagos, 31%, and now President Piñera, 18%. In elections, men occupy 80% of the positions as candidates for Congress. It is true also that women have not been interested or able of creating their own political leadership and have always been dependent on the support of political parties. In recent years, a new form of protagonism by women is appearing in the social milieu It is the case of student leaders and labor unions. In fact, for the first time, Barbara Figueroa is a leader in the main labor union in the country, usually in the hands and still of the Communist Party. But these are exceptions or symptoms of an apparent integration, what in the Anglo-Saxon world is called tokenism, contrasting with the under-representation in most stances of political decision. I think that another crucial factor to explain the lack of participation of women besides the uh, position of political parties, not only in politics but also in all er areas of the public sphere, is that Chile continues to have, despite advances, a very traditional society in the sense that its cultural socialization and value system is not fully modern as understood in the rest of the Western world. Let us recall that the term public woman in Chile still is a synonym to a prostitute, that most women who occupy public positions need to demonstrate that they are good mothers also. And if we look at recent advances in the situation of women, the most important one is the extension of the postnatal, what do you call that? Uh, The period, Maternity maternity leave, right. That is, a concession for mothers, probably taking into account also the fact that demographic statistics demonstrate a progressive decay in the fertility rate of the country. The average number of children is now somewhat less than 2%, mainly among the top 20% of the population according to income. Another traditional trend in Chilean society which influences the participation of women is the Catholic Church, which has not been exactly receptive to introducing women in decision areas despite good news on the part of Pope Francis. The only encyclical written on women, Mulheres Dignitatem by by John Paul II, insists on equal dignity between men and women, but states that maternity is a deeper reality in women and that their main concern should be the education of the children. Besides, as has been said already, the Catholic imprint was historically associated to the maintenance of social order and resistance against the moral and even political challenges posed by modernity. Another author remarks that moral and social conservatism in the political class in Chile, the weakness, heterogeneity, and lack of integration of women's movements are important restraints for a higher degree of feminine participation. At this point, let me say something about what women themselves do think. It is obvious that a traditional society would not continue to exist if it did not have an important support from both sexes. An important yearly survey in Chile reached interesting conclusions on this point about the value system of women and their insertion in the public sphere, both in politics and works and work. It is a contemporary survey. Regarding politics, Corporación Humanas in 2011 observed that women feel very discriminated in politics. 74% only surpassed by the working environment where it is 95%. This contrasts and probably causes great frustration because at the same time women have demonstrated their interest in participating in politics and it has increased in 12 points from 2009. Where one can observe most important changes in the value system of women is among the segments with higher income and education. Of course, they are more incorporated into the uh, cultural world environment. Their tendency is to let go of the domestic as well as the submission towards the husband and a natu- as a natural condition and obligation for them. Most important, they distrust marriage as a source of happiness. They accept living with their unmarried couple in a higher proportion than men and even to bear children being unmarried. In Chile... 695 of the children are born outside marriage. In 1970, it was only 30%. Women are no longer willing to cope with an unsatisfactory relationship for the welfare of the children. They are adamant in defending the right to work and, as we mentioned, no longer wish a large family. Interesting enough, their answers demonstrate attitudes less conservative than their male counterparts, for whom, obviously, marriage is satisfactory in a cultural setting where male infidelity and male absence from the whole receives little or no sanction. Men, keeping up with their machista bringing demonstrate preference for being the only breadwinner in the family, supporting again what women reject, money as a source of power. Where women do not demonstrate important changes is in relation to raising their children. They consider they are more capable and necessary than men and also demonstrate further control and dedication to the well-being of them. In popular sectors, there has been less change. Women have less opportunities to work in part due to the difficulty in obtaining childcare. Therefore, they provide less of the family income and thus depend more on their husbands. That is why they are more capable of coping with abuses and unhappiness in their marriages. The full insertion of women in the public sphere in Chile is far from guaranteed. Women of social sectors with access to economic well-being, higher education, information, and contact with the outside world have evolved to value their freedom, appreciate work, and desire to participate in as much as they do not subordinate their maternal roles. The conservative ethos is still very predominant among groups with strict Catholic upbringing, where more fundamentalist devotions have an important constituency like the Opus Dei, the Sodalicious and the Legionarios de Cristo. They tend to be the voting support for the right in the political spectrum. Attitude toward marriage is definitely one of the most important changes, but also only in educated women. If there has been an increase in the assertion of educated women in the public sphere, why are women still absent or underrepresented, as I have said? only 2.1% of women are members of political organisations, versus 49 of men. In the public sector, only 6% of women are in leading position, 20% in labor unions. We have also mentioned discrimination on the part of political parties and the prevalence of a conservative ethos reinforcing the domestic role of women. As far as political parties are concerned, as I said, for the next elections to be held in November, Of 548 candidates, only 18 percent of them are women, as has been in the last 20 years. This means that besides not accomplishing decentralization of decision-making means are not educated to represent the complexity of society through adequate mechanisms, which is evident in the fact that the Chilean population expresses little esteem for political parties. Identification with the two main coalitions has descended from 70% in 1990 to 30% this year. Women have therefore not profited from other evidently modern traits in Chilean economy and society. Sexism, elitism, and classism are contradictory elements within a social reality open to change and the official institutionalized society. Gates for diversity still need to be open. It is an uncovered need because inclusion into institutional and social organizations allows for democracy to complete what has been a very long or a too long transitional period. My opinion, and of course that are some other uh, analysts, is that one could revert the situation if Chile incorporated the system of quotas, at least transitorily, or exclusively transitorily, I would say, installed in Latin America in the last years. If the tendency is and should be towards participation, one has to stress the need for affirmative actions. Contemporary democracies have appreciated the principles of values that socially legitimate them. It has, <coughs> it has demonstrated effective in increasing political participation for women, especially considering that 53% of the Chilean electorate are women. Fifty countries in the world have assigned quotas and 11 of them are in Latin America. In 2005, countries with quota system had increased feminine participation in the legislative to 9.5% in contrast to 2.3% in those who did not have quotas. The literature also shows that women representing specific feminine points of view become very influential with the quota system. An example of this inclusive conviction has been offered recently by the European Union by establishing a quota for men of 40, for women excuse me, of 40% in the administrative councils of private enterprises with participation in the stock market. If we take into account that before only 12% were women, that in 97% of the occasions the council was presided by a man, this norm will probably oblige enterprises to favor women. Those firms which do not respect the norm will pay a fine or other forms of sanction will apply. The figures I have shown are eloquent as to underrepresentation of women. Let me, to finish, ask myself if we are to be optimistic. Undoubtedly, the chances for a woman president in Chile in the near future are very, very high. But once in power, women have not necessarily demonstrated further compromise with gender topics. As it was in the history of Chile, it still tends to be that women consider that power belongs to the male world, and thus should be exercised by women to obtain male approval. Nonetheless, the compromise with democracy may and should express itself in advances towards equality and foster the cultural changes necessary for the transit from a democratic government to a democratic society. That gender is obvious, that the private sector requires to be forced into some form of affirmative action. Advancing towards gender parity through some form of affirmative action in public and private sectors should become inescapable in a country with a democratizing agenda, as is the case of Chile. Thank you very much.